programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Now open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. Cache Valley is known for its majestic mountains, great snow, and unfortunately in the last decade, its smoggy winters. A few days a year, Logan has some of the worst air pollution in the nation. Today on the program, Randy Martin, Associate Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Utah State University, joins us to discuss air pollution in Cache Valley. I was interested in environmental engineering when I was uh, a teenager. Uh, I knew I wanted to do something to help out the environment as well as something that I knew I could uh, get a good job in. Growing up in Montana inspired Martin's interest in cleaning up our air. He went on to receive a Ph.D. at Washington State University in environmental engineering, focusing on air pollution. I grew up in uh, the town of Great Falls, which is kind of right in the center of Montana, and I spent a lot of time uh, out in the the woods and the mountains, and uh, I I grew to love the environment, and I knew we had to protect it. Back in those days, there weren't a lot of environmental protections in place, and I I could visually see uh, air pollution growing in the cities and uh, water pollution and solid waste pollution affecting the streams and, and the woodlands. And so I knew I wanted to do something to protect them, and this is where I ended up in environmental engineering. I went to uh, Montana Tech in Butte, Montana to get my bachelor's degree. I got that in 1982. Uh, from there, I went and worked for five years in, for a research company in Birmingham, Alabama, doing air pollution research, a pl- company called Southern Research Institute. After uh, that time, I went to Washington State University for my graduate degrees, a master's in environmental engineering, and a Ph.D. in environmental engineering, all the time studying air pollution. After I graduated with my Ph.D., I moved down to Socorro, New Mexico, and taught for eight years at the New Mexico School of Mines, uh, teaching environmental engineering and air pollution. And I just happened to see a a job open up here in uh, USU, and I had some family in Logan and uh, had some young kids. I thought it might be a good opportunity to move the kids up near the family as well as expand the air pollution program here. And uh, they offered me the job, and I came up in the year 2000. Were you aware of the air pollution problem then? I wasn't aware of the air pollution problem here uh, in Logan before we arrived. And I actually came up here the winter before to visit some family in Salt Lake, and we just came up to go to the hardware ranch over Christmas vacation one year. Uh, And I didn't notice any pollution at that time. When I came here into the valley, as far as uh, my perspective, uh, that first winter was actually a, a welcome into this great giant fishbowl that I could experiment in. I made contact with the Division of Air Quality here and got to know Grant Coford from the Bear River Health Department. And we've been studying this problem that I just sort of walked into uh, for the last 13 years. From an air pollution standpoint, it was fortunate and nice to come into a place where I could do a lot of work locally. But then from a uh, personal perspective, you know, no, I don't want to be breathing bad air either. The Wasatch Front suffers similar air quality issues with a different set of challenges. The last few years, they've actually had worse air than we have on on the most part. One of the challenges they have in the Wasatch Front is they're already controlling a lot of their emissions because of some ozone programs and carbon monoxide programs they've been under for the past few years. 
Uh, and so now they're struggling to find more emission reductions to get the PM2.5 under control. And it, it's been a challenge for them. Can you describe PM2.5 and, and what does that mean? PM2.5 are particulate matter suspended in the air that are less than or equal to 2.5 microns in diameter. So that's really, really small. That's about a 40th the diameter of a human hair. The reason that's important is because that's the size range that you can actually breathe down deeply into your lungs and can start causing health problems in the very smallest uh, alveoli sacs of the lungs where the blood oxygen transfer takes place. The particulate matter larger than PM2.5 is not as much of a danger because it tends to deposit within the upper respiratory tract in the mucus layers and is essentially coughed out. It's that small stuff, smaller than 2.5 microns, that can get down to the very bottom of the lungs. Does it stay in your lungs? It can stay there, yeah. It it actually kind of depends on exactly what it's made up and the exact size of the particles. But yeah, it can get down there and stay there and, and inhibit your oxygen exchange, as well as kick off a lot of other reactions within your lungs. When did the problem start emerging and what are the causes? Yeah, the history of, of the PM2.5 problem here in the Valley, coincidentally, uh, started the same year I moved here. A lot of the people I work with say, oh, Randy came here and all of a sudden we had an air pollution problem. Uh, the fact that uh, that I came here was hopefully just a coincidence, but that was the year that they did start measuring PM2.5 here in the Valley. Prior to that, they were measuring PM10, uh, and during the winter, while that was high, it wasn't over the regulation. When they started me- measuring PM2.5 in the year 2000, which is at the same time that became a regulated pollutant, immediately noticed that we had very high values here in the valley. And uh, through the research and through the years, we, we found out that that was really a wintertime problem. So it was associated with our unique topography and meteorology here in the Cache Valley. We get those tight inversions. And then we just happened to also have the magic sources here that all come together when we have these inversions that create our PM2.5. So it's a combination of topography, meteorology, and our unique sources uh, that contribute to our problem. The particulate matter are generally made up of five classes of compounds. Organic carbon, elemental carbon, which is also known as soot, dirt or dust or elemental compounds, and then you have ammonium sulfate and ammonium nitrate. Uh, Our particular PM2.5 are generally made up of mostly ammonium nitrate. That, that's what makes up most of the mass of our particles on the days that it gets bad. And the ammonium nitrate comes from ammonia, and the ammonia in the Cache Valley uh, is primarily produced from the agricultural sector. Uh, and it turns out we actually have an abundance of ammonia here in the Cache Valley as far as air pollution is concerned. So there's a lot of excess ammonia. That excess ammonia, under the right atmospheric conditions, combines with Uh, nitric acid. The nitric acid is formed from oxides of nitrogen, which are emitted from any combustion product, automobiles being a big part of that, and then also from the hydrocarbons or VOCs, which come from, again, automobiles and several other small, what we call area sources here in the Cache Valley. So we've got an abundance of ammonia. We've got the VOCs and oxides of nitrogen, which go on to form nitric acid. Those combine to form our ammonium nitrate particles. The ammonia is primarily from the agricultural waste products. From the feces and the urine of the the animals combine and go through uh, some bacteriological processes and and emit ammonia. That's the largest source here in the Cache Valley. Um, So we've got on the order of 100,000 cows, uh, 3 million chickens, 20,000 sheep and horses. So we've just got a lot of, of agricultural producers here in the valley, and it's just a natural process that produces that ammonia. Reducing ammonia is not the best solution, according to Martin. 
Targeting nitric acid is a better idea, he says. Car and truck engines burn chemicals that, when mixed with water vapor in the air, turn into nitric oxide, a key ingredient of acid rain. If we're not going to go after the ammonia, we're going to go after the other side, uh, that nitric acid side, to try to reduce those, because that economically is more feasible. We're always going to have the inversions. Whenever we have a, a, a cold winter with snow on the ground, inversions are going to form. So it's just a matter of what we put into the air to minimize that. Now, as I said before, we know we're ammonia-rich in the valley. So at least at first pass, it doesn't economically make sense to try to reduce those ammonia emissions because you'd have to reduce those emissions by at least 50% before we even started seeing a change. Whereas if you look, if you look at the other sources, the oxides of nitrogen and the hydrocarbons, we only have to do a much smaller emission reduction to see change. So this is why we're talking about doing things like the vehicle inspection program, putting some limitations on some of our diffuse area sources uh, to control some of the VOCs. Um, so we really don't have to do much control to get our air pollution below the regulatory limits. We have to reduce the emissions in the valley by about 1.6 tons per day. And that doesn't sound... Well, in the world of air pollution, that's not a lot. Uh, it sounds like a lot, maybe. So we're, we're emitting in the valley around 10 tons per day from our, from our automobiles is what we're currently emitting or so uh, of, of pollutants. And, and around the same thing from our area sources, around 10 tons per day. What we need to reduce that is only by about 10%. We need to get rid of about 1.6 tons per day. And we're, we're looking at doing that from a combination of the vehicles as well as the area source controls. VOCs, or volatile organic compounds, are emitted as gases from solids or liquids. They may cause short- or long-term adverse health effects. VOC examples include cleaning supplies, pesticides, paint, lacquers. These products are targets at local businesses. We're looking at furniture makers, auto body paint shops, dry cleaners, restaurants, uh, anybody that potentially could uh, emit particularly uh, hydrocarbons or VOCs. They're just going to have to have a little more tightness on their controls. Some of them already have controls in place, but the ones that don't, we're going to be required to uh, put controls in place, as well as then the automobile inspection programs. Can you give some specific examples of what businesses can do? Let's just take a paint facility or a cabinet maker, some places that, that coats their wood products or whatever with, with paint or, or varnish or some other uh, hydrocarbon. Uh, what those places are going to have to do is install some sort of scrubber that will then absorb the, the VOCs as the, as the paint is drying or as it's, as it's being applied, whether they're doing that inside of a booth or inside of a, a, a large building that has tight control on its flows. It'll basically mean putting an activated carbon scrubber uh, on their outlets. What about restaurants? Pretty much the same thing. It depends on the type of restaurants. The different types of ovens and grills all require slightly different controls. But it's, it's all the same concept of venting the emissions through a control scrubber to remove the VOCs. What we'd really like to do in the ideal world, besides having the vehicle inspection maintenance program, that's going to gain us uh, some emission reductions so we can identify the, the vehicles that are right now what we would call the gross emitters. We want to identify those vehicles and get them to clean them up. Most of the cars in the Valley are going to pass emissions inspections program. We know that already. But what ideally we'd love to do is have everybody reduce what we call the VMTs, vehicle miles traveled. Uh, that's just having your car on the road for less time. And one of the ways to do that is by 
getting more people to uh, take advantage of the mass transit system, carpool, do what we call trip reduction or trip consolidation instead of just running down to the grocery store for some milk. Wait till you have to go down for milk, butter, and eggs. You know, consolidate your trips. Just reduce the total numbers of miles driven here in the Cache Valley. I believe the the latest estimates on total miles driven per day in the Cache Valley is on the order of 2 million miles a day. Yeah, that, that's a stunning number. And we ought to be able to do things to reduce that mileage. How do you measure air pollution? Can you talk about the techniques that you use? Uh, well, as as we're talking about, our, our problem is PM2.5, which is a, a solid particle. And so the way we measure that is we, we bring suck in the air with a va- basically a vacuum pump, and we bring it through a specialized instrument called an impactor or a cyclone, which, which separates out the particles that are larger and smaller than PM2.5. The stuff that's larger than 2.5, we discard that generally. And then the stuff that's smaller than PM2.5, we collect that on a filter, a filter either made of glass fiber or Teflon. And then once we recover that filter, we can first weigh it to see how much mass it has gained and, and divide that by the total volume of air sampled, and that tells us what the concentration is in uh, micrograms per cubic meter. And then once we collect that mass data, we can then do chemical analysis on it. And there's several different analytical techniques we'll use depending on exactly what we're looking for. Uh, Ion chromatography, gas phase chromatography, x-ray fluorescence, uh, some thermal optical methods to determine the amount of carbon. So there's lots of high-tech analytical methods we use. The main one here in the Valley that we're really interested in is, is ion chromatography because that identifies the ammonium, and the nitrate portion, which is our largest fraction of our particles. How soon do you expect to start seeing results once the state strategies are fully implemented? According to the regulations, the state has submitted what's called a state implementation plan to the EPA, uh, which describes how we're going to achieve our goals. And the control programs are legally supposed to be in place on January 1 of 2014, so this coming winter. We're supposed to have these in place, which includes the vehicle inspection programs, the controls on those area sources. And if they're all in place uh, and working like they're supposed to, the models suggest that we should have clean air, well, regulatorily clean air uh, almost right away, that it should bring us down below that what's called the National Air Quality Standard of 35 micrograms per cubic meter. Can you talk about how Cache Valley's air compares to other cities across the nation and in the world? <laughs> That's a real good question. Within the United States, uh, Cache Valley is undeniably, unfortunately, has some of the worst air in the wintertime in the nation. And on any given day, we might be the worst air. We might be the 10th worst air. It kind of vacillates back and forth depending on exactly what meteorology is going around the country. Now, that being said, we may have the worst air in the country. Uh, There are places in the world that definitely has worse air than here uh, in regards to PM2.5. And the shining example over the last couple of years has been China. Uh, We talk about our highs of PM2.5 being around 100 micrograms per cubic meter. Last winter, China had 886 micrograms per cubic meter, which is well even beyond what's considered the hazardous range. It's, It's a very dangerous air. What are the main causes of the bad air in China? In China, the causes are very similar. Uh, They have uh, inversion set up during the wintertime. But then they have lots and lots of uncontrolled industrial sources, uh, power plants, coal-fired power plants being some of the main ones. Uh, their automobiles don't have as tight of controls as ours do. Um, so it's just really uncontrolled pollutants there. 
that's causing a lot of the problems, and coal-fired power plants being chief among those. The city of Logan is fueling city buses on compressed natural gas as one way to improve air quality. It is considered a cleaner form of energy compared to gasoline. What the natural gas does, those engines tend to burn a little hotter, and when you burn hotter, you produce more oxides of nitrogen. Natural gas is generally considered a cleaner burning fuel. It definitely produces less hydrocarbons, um, but it can, depending on exactly how it's operated, actually end up producing more oxides of nitrogen. So you've got to be careful how that's balanced out. But in general, yeah, that's a, that's a better uh, mode of transportation, at least here in the Cache Valley. Randy Martin kicks off USU's Science Unwrapped Fall Series called Toward Fewer Bad Air Days, The Science of Air Pollution, tonight at 7 in the Eccles Science Learning Center at the USU campus. He encourages everyone to work together so we can all breathe easier. I think one of the biggest things that people can do in the Cache Valley is to recognize that we're all part of this problem. Every single one of us contributes to air pollution. Our, our cars do, our wood stoves do, our, our businesses and industry do. And so we've got to be aware that, that we're part of the problem and we all need to be part of the solution. Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu slash hr. We've all heard the old saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. But how many of us actually routinely receive preventive services? Preventive services can include regular physical exams conducted by your primary care physician, blood tests, certain measurements like weight and blood pressure, immunizations, and screening tests to look for signs of cancer or heart disease. All of these services can help your doctor identify common yet potentially serious health concerns early, and early detection means early and hopefully more successful treatment. So how do you know which prevention services you need? The best thing to do is check with your general doctor. He or she should be able to tell you which tests you need and how often you need them, based on your gender, age, and family history. Keeping up with routine health screenings is key to preventing disease and staying healthy. This is Dana Barrett for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. I'm Megan Van Frank. Ghost towns of the Old West are generally relics of the mining industry, but this week learn about a now-deserted cow town called Old LaSalle. First this. The Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with support from a We the People grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. Situated in the northeast corner of San Juan County, at the foot of the LaSalle Mountains, Old LaSalle was once a thriving cow town. First settled in 1877, more than 20 families arrived within the first year to take advantage of the exceptional grazing in the nearby mountain range. Cabins were built and the town of LaSalle came into existence. During the next few years, the valleys of the regions filled with more settlers and their cattle. 
Steer sold for $10 per head in Utah, but brought in more than three times that amount just over the line in Colorado. Profits began to pour into the pockets of the LaSalle ranchers. During the 1880s and 90s, however, conflict arose between the ranchers and the Ute Indians accessing their ancestral lands. Outlaws also moved in to prey upon the district, sometimes wrestling whole herds of cattle. To make matters worse, the ranchers then faced several years of drought and falling cattle markets. These economic troubles ushered in an era of sheep raising that displaced cattle as the region's primary industry. The final straw for the town of LaSalle was the annual threat of extinction by floods down Main Street. By the late 1920s, LaSalle residents went looking for a safer, less isolated site. They packed up everything and moved some miles west to Coyote. The town was stripped of its houses, stores, barns, and corrals. They even took its name, and the town of Coyote was renamed LaSalle. Today, Old LaSalle is a ghost town lacking even ghosts. The old site is marked only by gaping cellars to show that people once lived there. The thousands of cattle that once passed through to Colorado markets are seen no more, and only an occasional flock of sheep visits the deserted site. Content for this episode of the Beehive Archive was provided by the Utah State Historical Society. Sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Visit us online at upr.org and click on the Beehive Archive link. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Bonnie Plants, plant growers since 1918, dedicated to sharing a love of gardening to help people become successful and productive vegetable and herb gardeners. Information is at bonnieplants.com. Welcome to Science Questions. I am Sherry Quinn. The amazing recordist Chris Watson from Britain takes us on a sound journey to Antarctica, where he encounters some of the rarest sounds on Earth. This is certainly the remotest landscape I have ever been recording in. I'm about 78 degrees south on this deep black tongue of lava and pumice surrounded by ice and snow. This is Cape Evans on Ross Island in the Antarctic and I'm just surrounded by the most remarkable, stunning and daunting views I've ever seen under this beautiful bright blue sky with a piercing sun it's 4pm the sun's not going to set it's not going to set for another two or three months bright burning rays and blistering white reflections off a sea of ice I'm looking out in front of now McMurdo Sound, most of it frozen solid to two or three metres, but a small silvery streak on the horizon many, many kilometres away, where the icebreaker Odin broke up the channel a few days ago. And far beyond, 60, 70, maybe a 100 
kilometres away. It's hard to tell in this completely pollution-free, crystal-clear air. The immense mountain range of the trans-Antarctic mountains of continental Antarctica. And west of that, just a few kilometres from here, the Barn Glacier. These huge walls of ice, 100, maybe 200 metres tall, just stop vertical and straight on the beaches. And just north of that, it's just amazing looking around, just north of that is Mount Erebus, a 4,000 metre high mountain with a volcanic peak. Which even today is these white, wispy plumes of heat and steam escaping from the lava lake. And across to the east and maybe north, this massive, looming monolith, an island, an island at the moment in a sea of ice and icebergs, inaccessible island. And then just a few metres above this high point, a plain, weather-beaten cross, which commemorates the three men from Shackleton's ill-fated trans-Antarctic expedition who died at this side waiting for Shackleton to cross after having laid out fuel and food depots not knowing that he was never going to get here and then a hundred metres below on the beach another bleached wooden hut that built by Captain Scott in 1911 for himself and his 23 other men who stayed here a couple of winters before he made his attempt to return from the South Pole, having reached it just a short time after Amundsen and died on the return journey. And then the quietness. Really difficult place to record. There's some Antarctic skewers on a small freshwater pool of, of melted snow down the slope which I occasionally hear but up here there is nothing else maybe a two or three kilometre breeze just carrying over this slope but apart from that this is probably as quiet as it gets on this planet down on the ice it's very different I was there this morning, just walking, <laughs> walking across the sea, or walking across the sea ice to reach a group of Weddell seals that were hauled out. But the sea ice is starting to break. It's January the 10th today, 2010. And the sea ice is lifting away from the Barnes Glacier and also from the, the beaches here. And so you can walk across these quite large flows they rub and scrape together and make this creaking, groaning and bubbling sounds which I've recorded underwater with hydrophones underneath the ice shelf.
quieter sounds, airborne sounds, just caught on this very gentle breeze, this low drumming and creaking and bubbling sea ice grinding on the pumice and the harder glacial ice and other smaller icebergs. Started to pick up here is I can see these black shapes across the sea ice waddling towards the land, and these are penguins, are daily penguins, which are on the way back to their colony at Cape Royds, which is six or seven miles across the Barn Glacier and another patch of frozen sea, where I went a couple of days ago to record this colony of maybe two or three thousand penguins that have still got chicks and amidst this Antarctic quietness it's really startling to come across sounds and behaviour and activity as loud as this. conjure up all sorts of emotions standing alone in this totally isolated landscape. And my colleagues are a kilometre or so down based at a camp in New Zealand, Antarctic camp. People are here to restore Scott's hut Terra Nova here on Cape Evans. But it's easy to escape people here. Just come over a kilometre or so over one of these... Um, these brows of, of lava and stare out into this wilderness and the distant continent beyond huge clouds carrying over some of the distant peaks and remarkable to think that people would look out from here south a hundred years ago and then step out with sleds onto what remained of the sea ice and pull thousand pounds of equipment and provisions into those mountains with the aim of walking something like a thousand kilometers through some mountain passes up onto the ice plateau to try and find the south pole in temperatures of 
minus 20, minus 30 degrees centigrade for days and weeks. And the interesting thing is, unlike, I guess, virtually every other place on this planet, the soundscape here will have remained the same. Antarctica is a place of extremes. It's the coldest, driest and highest continent on the planet. But now at the moment I'm stood just two metres above sea level because I'm actually stood on top of a frozen sea, the Ross Sea. And bizarrely, we've just landed here in a helicopter on sea ice about 10 kilometers offshore from Ross Island and the sea ice partly has been broken up by an icebreaker coming in to resupply the base at McMurdo and we've flown out here so I can record um, in some of the pools created by the icebreaker so I'm stood on the surface of a frozen sea with about two meters of sea ice below me and then the open ocean and the pilots just said his charts say we're standing on top of around about 300 meters depth of seawater and there's a whale just about to surface to breathe about three metres away from me off this ice edge. Here it comes. I've got a pair of hydrophones which uh, I can just dip in on the edge of this sea ice and uh, lower down off this ice shelf and just have a listen because I know there are orcas, killer whales in this channel as well.
Wow, I need a break. <laughs> I've almost walked to the South Pole, um, but not in true heroic style like Amundsen or Scott. I landed here at the South Pole base, the US base, here this morning um, in a Hercules C-130 transport plane. After an amazing flight over the Trans-Antarctic Mountains and the famous Beardmore Glacier. Uh, and we've been at the base, checked in, put on my extra, extra cold weather gear as advised because looking at the temperature readouts in the canteen inside, it's uh, at the moment minus 37.5 degrees centigrade out here beautiful bright blue day with a very slight breeze but as soon as that breeze catches your skin it burns it um, and so it's it's about the most wrapped up I've ever been and conveniently of course the South Pole is just a few hundred meters out from the main door of the base and it's about 50 or 60 metres in front of me now, so I'm going to take the last few steps. So this is it. The most remotest place on earth the south pole it may be the remotest it's certainly not the quietest because there's a large significant u.s base here uh, with all the infrastructure that that requires motorized vehicles there's an airstrip um, there's a lot of people working on the roof today but beyond there's this flat landscape of ice and snow going to this far distant horizon where the ice and snow meets this pale blue line of sky. I think, as I, I can sort of scan through 180 degrees, I like to imagine I can actually see the curvature of the earth but I don't know maybe that's just distortion through these high strength UV goggles because it's, it's piercingly bright and then in front of me the ceremonial south pole because of course um, why have one pole when you can have two and there's a ceremonial south pole which is this silver ball um, on top of this metre-high, red-and-white, diagonally-striped pole and a semicircle of international flags. Twelve nations are represented there. And it's sighted right in front of the, of the building, the United States Antarctic Programme South Polar Base. And then just off a couple of hundred metres to the side is the geographical South Pole, I suppose a historically significant one. And at the moment that's interesting me rather more because it's 
it's rather more isolated and I can see a white sign um, and some other sort of brass marker and a flag of the United States so I wonder over there it's tough walking around here this is the geographic South Pole elevation 9,301 feet although as it's been explained to me because we're also on top of a mountain of ice the actual altitude is um, in terms of the oxygenated air is about 14,000 feet so even walking a few hundred metres with recording equipment on the level through snow and ice is quite tough. I cannot imagine what it would be like for uh, people a hundred years ago hauling sleds. The only thing apart from a sign and a brass measuring device is this American flag hanging here, which does sound pretty good in this breeze. And there's a simple wooden sign in front of me here, planted in the ice. The geographic South Pole. And to the left, the name Roald Amundsen December the 14th, 1911. And a quotation which must be from his diary. So we arrived and were able to plant our flag at the geographical South Pole. Typically stoical statement from the Norwegian. And then opposite to the right, the name Robert F. Scott, January the 17th, 1912. The Pole, yes, but under very different circumstances from those expected. But still, this is it, the South Pole. And if I spin round 360 degrees and look to that far distant horizon where the haze and the ice and the snow blur into this vanishingly pale blue sky every direction I look in from here I'm looking north well I've moved away as far as I safely can from any of the construction work and the vehicles and the flapping flags to try and get an atmosphere of what the sound is really like here at the South Pole today Friday the 15th of January 2010 16.39 hours local time
recording. I've been down here in the Antarctic about four weeks now and I realised that the airborne soundscape when I'm away from some of the penguin colonies at least is characterised by this really deep sense of quiet but I realise now it's the sea ice that's really captured my imagination both within it and below the surface and the sounds I've recorded underneath with my hydrophones really do defy description and I know what animals are making these sounds so I think to conclude this piece the best thing I can do is just to introduce the animals and let them speak for themselves and this first track is an underwater or under ice recording of Weddell seals which had gathered underneath these huge pressure ridges of sea ice a sort of crumple zone near the coast where the the wave action and the tidal action pushes huge slabs of ice up into the air like random concrete structures and the seals gather on the edges hauled out but also vocalise under the water These are my favourite animals, one of the world's top predators and probably the most intelligent animal on the planet. Orcas, killer whales, hunting Weddell seals and penguins down these narrow sea ice channels that have opened up, which they cruise up and down hunting using echolocation and communicating within their social groups with these highly complex vocalizations. Thank you to Chris Watson for braving Antarctica and bringing us those rare recordings. Science Questions is produced by Sherry Quinn, Susie Montgomery, and Elaine Taylor. And we welcome aboard intern and sound engineer Clint Holgate. Thanks for listening.
I was 18, the first time I stayed out all night to watch the Perseids meteor shower. It was on a backyard trampoline with my high school boyfriend, exactly one week before he went away to college in another state and forgot about me. I'd seen isolated shooting stars before, but this was something else altogether. It was dazzling, but also devastating. I felt literally like everything was falling apart. The sky was cracking. The celestial ceiling was shattering. I cried the whole time. Summer is my favorite season. I love the heat. I crave the sun. But even during drawn-out Indian summers, when the Perseids come around, the summer seems to come to a screeching halt. Oh God, I think everything is about to change. I got married under the Perseids, slept in a tent that night, and got on a plane the next morning to move to a new country, my visa having arrived the day before in the nick of time. I came to Utah during the Perseids to start yet another new life. I arrived in Logan homeless and once again found myself sleeping in a tent under a sky that was falling. I'm always moving in August. I'm always sleeping outside in August. The meteors of the Perseids are thrown from the debris of the comet Swift-Tuttle. This comet has a nucleus 26 kilometers in diameter, which is like 40% larger than the object that smashed into not-yet-Mexico and caused a massive planet-wide extinction. And Swift-Tuttle is scheduled to have another close encounter with planet Earth around September 15th, in the year 4479, with a literal one-in-a-million chance of colliding with Earth. Depending on which mythology you ask, shooting stars are good luck, make a wish, quick, before it burns out, or bad omens. In Central European mythology, your soul is hanging by a thread from the heavens, and when you die, that thread breaks and your star falls out of the sky. So there's that. When it comes to space, I like to pretend that I don't know anything. I like to pretend that I'm seeing the night sky for the very first time, and I try to understand what I'm seeing. When you think about it that way, it doesn't seem so strange that meteor showers are scary. Like other uneducated people who came before me, it's easy to see the phenomenon as fiery snowfall, or projectiles in a cosmic war, or dragons with long burning tails. Come to think of it, specks of dust burning up in our atmosphere is probably the least interesting explanation. The Perseids meteor shower is a favorite because it's reliable and showy and comes during favorable weather in the northern hemisphere. This year, I fell asleep on the ground in an Idaho valley under an astounding sky with bites taken out at the edges by jagged peaks. I wasn't exactly making wishes on all of those falling stars, but I was thinking with intense curiosity at every flash about what in my life I should be expecting to change before September. There's a sense of relief in the Perseids, like in a summer rain shower, and the angst of August slowly fades away as the meteors become less frequent and as night falls earlier and earlier. Eventually, I wake up one morning and say, let's do this thing. Let's hit the books. Let's go make some friends. Let's focus on the stars that are fixed in their place. Let's hang our wishes on those pinpricks of consistency. I'm Jennifer Pemberton. Burning the stars, shining brightly, making sure you don't fall too far. We'll keep an eye on you if you keep one on me. What happens to see? 
Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. On your Utah Public Radio community calendar for this weekend, USU's Science Unwrapped program welcomes environmental engineer Randy Martin presenting Cracking the Code, a discussion on Cache Valley's air quality solutions. Tonight at 7 p.m. in USU's Eccles Science Learning Center, Emmert Auditorium. Admission is free and all are welcome. And from 3 to 6 Today, there will be a car wash fundraiser to help the family of Eric Anderson. Anderson, a a USU student, was killed when he rode his bicycle into a slack line on Old Main Hill on August 26th. Donation tables will also be present. You can add your own event to our calendar simply by logging on to upr.org. Thank you for listening.